So it may come as a bit of a surprise to see me up here today because it came as a bit of a surprise for me to see me up here today. Um, uh, some of you may have heard, some of you may have not, um, Pastor John's mother passed away this week. Uh, so um, just so he could be you know, free to be with family and to do the things that he needed to do, um, we talked about me stepping in and uh, us swapping roles. Um, but he will uh, do the announcements at the end, and he has some thoughts that he would like to share with everyone. So uh, we'll be hearing from him a little bit later on. Um, but in the meantime, uh, I don't know about when you were in your adolescence, youth, but I had some weird thoughts and some weird uh, patterns of life and some weird habits that I enacted in my life and different uh, ideas that I had. And one particular idea that I had when I was a teenager, uh, younger side of teen years in the like 12, 13 range, is that someday... I might go blind. So I, and I didn't really have a rational reason for thinking that, but I thought, well, I could go blind, and so I should be prepared in case I do. And so what I would do is, and it was the silliest thing because it really didn't help much because who doesn't know the, their house like the back of their hands, but I would like close my eyes and do all the things that I normally do in my house. And so I'd walk through the house with my eyes closed and try to navigate my way to various things and uh, feed myself and use the bathroom and all, the, the, all those things um, because, you know, one day I might be blind. And, you know, I, I, I never tried this practice out in the world, though. I didn't try, like, riding my bike or something <laughs> like that. So maybe I would have been okay in my own house, but I didn't do a very good job putting this practice into place out there in the world. And I'm sure all of us, if, if we were to go around the room, we would all have some silly things that we thought of or uh, tried to prepare for or, you know, what have you. But in a true sense, there's something to be said for being proactive and for preparing for the future, preparing uh, yourself for, you know, seasons of difficulty. And so we uh, make investments like buying life insurance. Uh, that's something that I did this past year uh, with, you know, having a wife and now a son uh, come into the world. And so I I bought life insurance, and I, you, know, you can see wisdom in being proactive and doing things like that. You can see wisdom in being proactive in saving up money because you recognize that you may lose your job. You, you know, there may be an accident that causes you to become disabled or something along those lines. And so while in some situations being proactive or trying to prepare yourself for uh, things you could say, well, it's irrational, or, you know, that's an irrational fear that you have that you're trying to prepare for, or, you know, in the event of nuclear fallout or whatever, can you really, is, you know, is hiding under your desk really going to protect you in that situation? Um, but there's other things, you know, there's fire drills that we do in, in schools, there's um, lockdown drills that we do, that we can truly see the merit to them, and you know, we may hope that we never have to use them, but being proactive in those ways, we can look at it and we can say, yeah, that's wise. And so today, I want to talk about the idea that we ought to be proactive in knowing the Lord. 
We don't want to find ourselves in a hairy situation and have a weak relationship with him or no relationship at all. And so in 1 John, we've been looking at the idea of confirming our eternal fellowship in Christ. And we talk about how uh, in, sometimes people look at the book of 1 John and they can get nervous or anxious looking at some of the dogmatic speech, some of the black and white thinking that John uses in the book of 1 John. And he contrasts light with darkness and love with hate and everything. There's no middle ground, apparently, as you look at John in the book of 1 John. And so people look at a book like this and we say, wow, I don't always do a good job loving my brother. I don't always do a good job living in the light if we even you know, really recognize what that means. And so we, we question those things, and then we start asking questions like, well, am I really saved? Do I, do I really have a relationship with the Lord? Do I really know the Lord? But I would submit that that's not John's purpose. His purpose is not to cause people to doubt who are saved. His purpose is to say, no, this is what it looks like to live the life that you've been called to. And he uses uh, phrases a lot like children. And he talks about the idea of father. And he says, well, if you're truly a child of God, then you should look like your father, just like in the earthly sense, children look like their parents. And so the, uh, he kind of sets forth this idea of, here's what the middle of the path is like. Not straying to one side or the other, And so he employs this black and white thinking so that we can see clearly what it looks like to live the life of a believer. And he continually revisits the idea of love throughout. And it's almost redundant how much the idea of love comes out because he'll talk about love and then he'll go and he'll talk about false teachers. And he'll talk about love and then he'll go and he'll talk about other things. But he comes back to the idea of love three times at great length and then um, even throughout he brings up the idea of love. And mostly that's because we're sometimes, I, I think, at least my hypothesis would be that John recognizes that we are thick-headed at times and that loving is honestly a pretty hard thing to do. And so he sets forth, a, a, in a sense, a black and white roadmap to stay on the center of the path to not try to get close to one edge or the other. Here's what it looks like to walk the straight and narrow of the Christian faith, to live a life patterned how Jesus set forth for us. So we're going to be looking at this idea of, so we confirm our eternal fellowship in Christ. That's the idea that I believe John lays forth through the whole book. Today we're going to be looking at how knowing the Lord, having a rich relationship with the Lord, knowing Him intimately, is the basis for that fellowship. Knowing him sets the foundation for being able to have eternal fellowship with Christ and then also with fellow believers in the body of Christ. And so if you're not there already, please turn to 1 John 2, 12 through 17. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it's page 1021. 1 John 2, 12 through 17. 1 John 2, 12-17. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, 
because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from God, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the progression of maturity that it highlights and the necessity of forsaking the world. So as we look at it, God, we pray that you'd give us grace to understand it. Um, And God, I pray that you would likewise give us grace to put it into practice in our lives, that we would be transformed through your word and through the renewing of our minds by our exposure to it. We thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So right from the get-go, we, t- we have this idea of knowing the Lord means maturing in Him. And so we see this uh, repetition and these revisiting of three different um, designations in terms of age. First we see little children, then we see fathers, then we see young men. And these verses are spiritual designations. He's not writing to literal little children. Children. He's not writing to literal fathers. He, he could be. It applies to them, obviously. But overarchingly, he, this is a, um, a metaphor for maturity in our Christian faith. And we see that by the fact that John, throughout 1 John, calls everybody little children. Remember, John is the last living apostle of Jesus Christ at this point. He is the premier authority on the Christian faith, on the life of Jesus Christ, because he's the last person alive who had experienced it, who knew the Lord face-to-face in that three-year period. He's the one who, at the Last Supper, leaned back against Jesus' breast. He had a close, intimate relationship with the Lord, and uh, in terms of apostolic authority, he's the last of twelve. And so, everybody is a a little child to John. He was, in a lot of ways, like a father to the whole church at that point. And so who he, everyone who he writes to, he's referring to as children. And so he's writing to these various believers in different states of their growth as Christians. And this is not a primarily, even though he uses masculine terms, this doesn't just apply in the masculine sense. So it's, it's, it's not just, it's not like, women can tune out when they read passages of Scripture like this. This applies to all believers. It's highlighting um, an example and a metaphor of a progression of spiritual maturity. And then one other thing that I'd like to know before we start digging into the actual text is that each uh, designation, what they hear, is simultaneously what someone in that role wants to hear and what they need to hear. And I think this is um, rare in terms of having truth shared with you. Generally speaking, um, what we want to hear isn't always what we need to hear. And that's why, that's when a lot of times when the truth will hurt in a sense. Because we hear the truth and we are confronted with it and it's not necessarily what we would want to hear. But in this case, For each of these designations, I would say that what they do hear is what they would, in fact, want to hear. 
And so first we see children. What are children like? I have an eight-month-old son, and I will tell you that he is very dependent and very needy. Uh, and any, anybody who you know, has been around a child for any length of time or even read any book on child psychology uh, or any exposure to children at all will recognize very quickly how needy and dependent children are. Uh, you know, the, uh, everything from going to the bathroom and having to have an adult clean it up to everything that they eat um, or what you prevent them from eating <laughs> uh, is uh, um, very much an example of how needy and how dependent children are. And so what do they hear? And, and you, you see each of these designations is revisited uh, after the initial. So he, he speaks to children, then he speaks to the fathers, then he speaks to the young men, and then he goes back to children, then he goes back to fathers, then he goes back to young men. And so the first time around, John shares with children that their sins are forgiven. And, you know, this is the equivalent of, you know, Roland obviously can't talk. He understands some of what we communicate to him. He's starting to grasp the idea of no. Whether he listens or not is a completely different story because wires look very edible to him. And so I, th I don't think he can always resist that urge. Um, but this idea is the equivalent of communicating the feeling to a child that you are loved, you are accepted, you are welcomed. And so that's a powerful feeling to communicate. And so as little children, as a new believer in Jesus Christ, as a baby in the faith, this idea, the communicating, I write to you little children, your sins are forgiven, is a very powerful idea to communicate. Because it's communicating the idea that you are home, you are welcome, you are loved, you are accepted by the Lord. So you've, you've demonstrated faith in Jesus Christ, and because of that, you are part of his family now. Which brings us to the next point that he makes to little children down in verse 13, uh, the, the latter part of that. He says, I write to you little children because you know the Father. So again, a very powerful idea indeed for a child. That you, you have a parent. That you have someone who is going to watch over you. Someone that you can go to when you're scared, when you're hurt, when life gets difficult, you have someone that you can run to. And so as, as little children in the faith, as very young believers, this is so encouraging, the idea that you can run into the arms of the God of the universe and know Him as Father, and know Him as your parent. And that it, He is not detached from you. He is not, well, I'm God and your problems are trivial and get away, dumb kid. That's not how God reacts to little children in the faith. He welcomes them with loving arms as a father would. And so these things are very encouraging indeed to, to a, a young child. You are welcomed, you are accepted, you are loved. Your sins have been forgiven. Do you have direct access 
to God as your parent, as your father, you can run to Him. That you know the Father. And then he goes on to speak to the fathers. And what are fathers typically like? Well, we would hope that they are wise. That they have experienced enough of life that they can share some insight. But I think also sometimes fathers are tired. I think also sometimes fathers are tried (laughs) and worn out. Um, And, you know, I can't even begin to imagine the taste of this that some of you who are parents of teenagers have. I I hang out with them once or twice a week, (laughs) and sometimes I feel tested and tried. (laughs) Um, And so for, you know, people who are parents of teenagers, I I can't even imagine. And so sometimes fathers are, are tired, worn out, and I think sometimes they're insecure in the sense that they wonder, is this all for naught? It, am what I, I'm instilling in my children, am what I'm passing on, or is what I'm passing on to the next generation being absorbed? Are they getting it? Are they, is, is this just vanity? Am I just wasting my time here? And so what's the encouragement that's shared with the fathers in the faith, the ones who are mature in the faith? You know him who is from the beginning. I think that this is a very powerful encouragement that we, you don't necessarily see initially. And he, it, it, this is the only one of the three that's repeated exactly the same both times. So when it's shared the first time, it's you know him who is from the beginning. And then the second time, you know him who is from the beginning. In, the, in that phrase, there's packed this idea that You've, you've grown with Him, but you still have a relationship with Him. You still are carried and borne along by the Father. And yes, you have seen the hard times. You've seen the highs and the lows. You've dealt with trial. You've dealt with tribulation. You've dealt with very many things that are not constant. You've dealt with the shifting tides of life. But God is constant for you. The the one who is from the beginning has been there with you each step of the way. And that it is not in vanity that you strive. It is not all for naught. And yes, you may be tired and you may be exhausted, but you still have your reward. The relationship with Him who is from the beginning. And so there is so much encouragement there to, pr- to press on, to continue on, as you always have, because the Lord has never left you. He's, he's worked with you. He's stayed with you. He's brought you to that point of wisdom, that point of experience. And He has borne you along each step of the way. And so the fathers find their constancy in the Lord, in the midst of their insecurity, in the midst of their wisdom. They know Him who is from the beginning, and He has carried them each step of the way. And then he goes on to the young men. And what are, what are young men like? You can say vigorous, strong. You know, if you, if you want proof of this, just watch Jay Stonge do anything. <laughs> um, but what else are young men like? Sometimes rash, reckless. They don't necessarily think of what the consequences are for various things. And maybe prone to question authority. 
beginning to become autonomous themselves as an independent adult entering into adulthood. They can start to question the authorities, the structures that have been placed over them, and they can start to rebel in some ways. And so what's the encouragement that they have? Well, first they hear, you've overcome the evil one. I don't know about you, but I I guess, you know, for all purposes, I'd be considered a young man, and I don't always feel like it, but um, that's neither here nor there. Uh, But as the idea of triumph and overcoming, and, you know, this is very much a, a romanticized idea of what a young man pictures, the glory of battle. The idea of overcoming. And so they're encouraged with this idea that you have overcome the evil one. How? Well, through faith in the Lord. You need to go no further than within this book, 1 John 5, 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he that believes in the Son of God. It's not like the young men in their own vigor and strength that they mustered up. They overcame Satan. It's through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is simultaneously an encouragement in what you would want to hear as a young man, but it's also a reminder that it's only through the Lord Jesus that you can have the victory that you so eagerly desire. And then he goes on the second time when he speaks to these young men. He says, he he repeats the sentiment that you've overcome the evil one, but first he says, you are strong. The Word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. And so, these young men who are prone to question authority and are reaching this stage of independence and autonomy, they're encouraged with the idea that you have the Word of God abiding in you. And that is authoritative. And so you are subject to the authority of Scripture. No matter how strong you are, no matter how vigorous you are, no matter how autonomous you are, As a believer in Jesus Christ, even in your strength, even in your autonomy, even in your independence, you're no longer a little child who's needy and dependent. You still have the Word of God abiding in you as authoritative in your life. And so that is simultaneously convicting and encouraging. Because even though you're prone to make rash decisions, even though you're prone to do things that cause very bad consequences in your life, you still have God as Father. Just as the little children know Him as Father, just as the fathers can reminisce on the fact that they have known Him all along the way, the young men know, those who are in the the midst, they know that they still have the Lord with them each step of the way. And so when they make those rash decisions, when they do that reckless thing, they can still turn back to Him. And so He brings through this progression of maturity and He's encouraging each step of the way. Little children, what do you need to know? You need to know that you are welcome, that you are accepted, that you are home. And that you have a, a hotline. You have an eternal number of phone-of-friends to the Lord of the universe. And He'll be there for you each step of the way as your parent, as a loving parent to you. And fathers, you have the constancy of the Lord 
who yes, you know is Father, but He has been with you each step of the way. He has brought you to where you are and He will continue to bear you along through each trial and tribulation and difficulty that you face and it is not all vain and vanity. And young men, though you're prone to adventure and wander and explore, you're strong, sometimes thick-headed and sometimes stubborn. You have the Word of God abiding in you and you, through Jesus Christ, have overcome the evil one. And so there's an encouragement there for the, the fathers to then, if, if it's not all vain, if, if they have this wisdom, to share it with the young men, to share it with the children. There's this encouragement for the young men in their strength, in their vigor, in their triumph, to press on, to serve the Lord mightily, to encourage the fathers by living out the faith and the Word of God that's abiding in them. There's an encouragement to the young children There's no reason to be insecure just for the moment living in the truth that you are welcomed and accepted and that you have a Father in Heaven who loves you. But it makes sense that we would work to progress through this, that we would work to gain wisdom, that we would work to gain insight, that we wouldn't repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And I think that the reason why this is repeated has to do with growth is often cyclical, first of all. You know, we, for instance, with, with Roland right now, um, you know, he's g- going through growth in terms of his sleeping patterns and how many naps he takes in a day. And every time he transitions from taking four naps to three naps, and then taking three naps to two naps, he has a sleep regression. Which means that before it gets better and the next stage of maturity, it gets a lot worse, namely for Renee and myself as his parents because he struggles at first when he takes that next step of maturity of starting to only take three naps a day or starting to only take two naps a day because he's really tired when it comes time to go to bed at night. And in a lot of ways, that's how it works with us. As we, we grow, we grow, we grow, and then we have setbacks. And we grow, we grow, we grow, we have setbacks. And so growth in a lot of ways is cyclical. And then also, I think, Secondly, there's a a real truth to the idea that we need to hear things multiple times to get them. And so repetition is very useful in the sense of convincing us. And again, we can be thick-headed. We can be stubborn. And so through the Apostle John, the Lord uses repetition to remind us. And so I think that's why John uses this structure here. And so, then in the context of growing in spiritual maturity and um, growing into a deeper relationship with the Lord and the importance of maturing in that relationship with Him, we have this idea that knowing the Lord means forsaking the world in verses 15 through 17. And so John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So this comes in the context 
of maturing in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the context of overcoming the evil one. And so, here we see that the world is not often what we... uh, When we see the word world in Scripture, in various places it means different things. And so, you know, when you look at John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that's talking about the people of the world. It's different than what John's referring to here when he talks about the world. And so I would define the world in this context as the instead-of-God system that pervades our lives simultaneously from within and without. And that's crucial. We have the stains of sin, we have the stains of the world, even within our own hearts. But it's also from without. So it pervades every area of our lives without the intervention of the Lord. And so in verse 15, he starts off with this idea that we have to choose one or the other. We either love God or we love the world. This instead of God culture has no place in the life of a believer. So John's going back to this very thick line in the sand, and you're either on the side that loves God or you're on the side that loves the world. And you can't have one foot on both sides of the line. It's one or the other. And if your foot's on the world side, then you may think that you still have one foot on the love God side, but that's not true. You choose. And any time you choose to love the world, you are choosing to hate God. Because, again, this is an instead-of-God system that Satan has employed since the dawn of creation. Jesus says it this way, No one can serve two masters, in Matthew 6, 24, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This word money here is like, it's not just the green stuff in your wallet. It's the stuff. It's literally what this world places value on. You cannot serve both God and the things that this world can provide you with. You have to choose. It's one or the other. Both in John's eyes and in Jesus' eyes. And so everything that is of the world is not of God, therefore. Because again, it is an instead-of-God system. It is something that is trying to put itself in the place of God. And so we see three patterns of temptation from the world. The desires of the flesh. The idea that this feels so good, I would rather have it than the Lord. Anything that we would sin if to get, anything that we would have a pattern of sin to get in our fleshliness, or sin if we don't get. And then the desires of the eyes. This looks so good. I would rather have it than the Lord. And then the pride of life. Simply this idea that, nah, God, I'm good. I'm my own master. I will not submit to you. I will not be subservient to anyone. I am the ruler of my life. I am the authority of my life. I am autonomous. 
And this is what we see throughout Scripture. When we look at the temptation of Adam and Eve, what does Eve see? You see in Genesis 3, 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So first we see she looked at it, and she saw that it was good for food, the desire of the flesh. It looked tasty. It looked like it would satisfy the desires of her flesh. It was a delight to the eyes. She looked at it and said, I, I know that God said that I shouldn't want that, but I do want that. And I, in fact, I want it more than I want the Lord right now. And so she took it in, in the desire to be not just wise in a human sense, but in a desire to be autonomous from the Lord, to be a God in and of herself, equal to God as Satan tempted her. The pride of life. She did not want the constraints of the Lord. And Adam's no superhero in this context either, so it's not like I'm isolating women here. Humankind fell in this moment to these temptations, this pattern of the world that has existed since then. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And here we see that God's word is called into question. How did Satan start that conversation? Did God really say? He trips her up in her words as she tries to say what the Lord said. And then he calls God an outright liar. You will not surely die, he says to Eve. So here we see an undermining of the word of the Lord in and in place, we see this instead of God system injected from the very dawn of creation, from the very outset of sin in humankind. And as we go forward in Scripture, we see that Satan again tries the same tactic when he tempts Jesus. And so in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, what do we see? Jesus is famished, he's hungry. He's been fasting for 40 days and Satan comes to him and says, you're the son of God, right? You can do miracles. There's stones right here. Have them become bread. The desires of the flesh. The desire to gratify the flesh. And then Jesus refutes that and going forward, Satan takes him to the top of the temple the public gathering place where everybody would see just how magnificent and glorious the Son of God is and says, jump off. Won't that be a spectacle? Won't that be a sight to see? The desire of the eyes to have the crowds in awe at the miraculous sight of seeing the Son of God bore up by angels. But Jesus refutes that. And then finally, Satan says, takes him to another high place and he says, look at all these kingdoms. Look at all, these, all this world. You could rule all of it and you don't even have to die on the cross. Pride of life. 
the glory that really was rightful, is rightfully Jesus's. But all of that came with what? If you bow down and worship me, it is Satan's system. And when we pattern our lives by these things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the, des- the pride of life, we are patterning our life how Satan wants to see our lives patterned. So, therefore, there is no possibility that we could be both patterning our lives after the world and patterning our lives after Jesus. They are in total opposition to one another. And in this situation of Jesus, what does he do? Instead of, when Satan tries to undermine the word of God, but instead of letting the word of God undermine, Jesus uses the word of God to refute Satan each step of the way. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to a foolish test. And then, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And so, we see a very stark contrast from the picture of Adam and Eve and the picture of Jesus. Because He uses the Word of God to overcome temptation. Why does this matter? We see that in verse 17. See in verse 17, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away. Followers of God live forever. So it doesn't make sense for the living to pattern their life after the dead. Because that's basically what this would be like. And Technology has come a long way, and so when we think about you know, writing our Word documents or Google Docs, for me, um, there's a very uh, um, nice feature that all of your work just gets saved pretty much immediately. It's wonderful. But back when I was in high school, there was much more pressure and responsibility on you to periodically hit that Save button. Um, and I'm sure everyone in this room has experienced you know, writing a paper, getting really far on it, or writing a speech, getting really far on it, and then something happens, your technology glitches, you accidentally delete it all, and then you do something else, so undo doesn't work anymore, and all your work is gone. And that feeling of, it was all just vanity, it was worthless. Why did I, it was just such a waste of time. Or uh, even more of a waste of time, uh, if you think about playing video games, and, you know, the idea that, and I, you know, I like to play video games, and they're, you know, it's, ah, I don't need to save. You know, I can just go, and I can try to fight this boss, and I, I won't have to save. Or the people who are, like, super hardcore gamers, they're like, I'm going to play the mode that doesn't let you save, because I just want to show how hardcore I am at this video game thing. And then they end up dying, and they lose all their progress. And then that's kind of like a double waste of time, because you were playing a video game to begin with, and then you lost all the progress you made in the waste of time video game for in the first place. And I love video games, you know. I, I, I'm right there with you. Um, but that's a lot like what investing in this world is like. Investing in this world, except, you know, it's, it's very much like that, you know. You're, you're, you're building mountain, you're building towers here, you're building 
um, idols to yourself here. When you live pattern after the world, you're building monuments to life here and now. And it's all going to get thrown out. It's all going to get cast away. Except, there is no ultimate save button on any of that. Unless you're talking to Jesus Christ. Because unless you're talking to Jesus Christ, unless you have a relationship with Him, unless you've believed in Him, unless you've called on Him as Lord and Savior, we are all condemned to destruction along with the world and its system. So we desperately... (laughs) need to call on him. Remember, this instead of God's system is not just pressure from without. It's not just Satan saying, hey, do this bad thing. It's us saying to ourselves, hey, this bad thing sounds like a pretty good idea right now. This sin sounds better than God right now. We ourselves, our natural tendency is to set up this instead of God's system all in and of ourselves without any help from Satan. We need to call on the Lord. And so, the issue of my weird tendencies as a teenager, uh, trying to prepare myself for the uh, eventual day that I might become blind, actually stemmed from an issue that when I was five years old, I was you know, swimming in the shallow end of my uncle's pool, playing it safe as a five-year-old. Uh, um, and I came up out of the water, and an older teenage boy had just taken a quarter and skipped it across the water, pretty foolishly, given that I was on the other end of the pool, and smacked me right in the eye. Um, and so, pretty immediately, there wasn't white in my eye. It was just red. Um, and so, you know, I had to get rushed to a doctor, I had to get rushed to um, all these um, appointments and stuff like that, I had to wear an eye patch for a while and all, all that. And the doctors at that point said, probably going to lose sight in this eye eventually because it, there's, the damage is just really, really extensive. And, uh, you know, we can do what we can to make that last as long as possible, but you got to get glaucoma tests regularly, you got to have it checked out. And, you know, the human body is a um, pretty remarkable um, creation, and so I, in a, in a very huge way, have recovered from that and haven't had any issues and probably won't go blind, um, although my eyesight is pretty terrible. Um, but uh, if we think about ourselves in the spiritual sense, we are at a deficit like that. It's not like we come into the world with this fantastic vision. It's not like we come into the, this, the world with this clean slate. We are at a deficit of corruption within ourselves because of sin. And so, knowing God doesn't come on our terms. It must come on His terms and through His guidance. This world will tell you that God can be whoever you want or need Him to be in a given moment. That's not what God tells you. God lays forth very clearly who He is, what He is like in His Scriptures, and the way to be close to Him. His Son, Jesus Christ. There is one mediator between God and man. 
the man Christ Jesus. So maturing in Him and forsaking this world similarly can only come through His power. It can only come through reliance on Him. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with David Platt. Um, I really appreciate his style of preaching. He's a uh, speaker and he does a lot of work with international missions. um, And he travels around and speaks a lot. And I recently listened to a sermon on him. And he talks about the idea of without a love for the Lord, we as Christians are just trying to manufacture a love for missions and ministry and service to the Lord, and that is a very dangerous place to be. We must start at our core with a broken heart before the Lord, with a love for Him, with a reliance on Him, knowing that His Word abides in us, knowing that we can run to Him as our parent, knowing that He is with us and He is constant and He carries us along each step of the way. And out of that will flow a love for doing His work, doing His will, doing missions and doing ministry. We must know and love the Lord in order to have fellowship with Him and true, deep, intimate fellowship with one another as the church. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank You so much for Your Word. I thank You so much that You do carry us along, that You do remain constant in our lives each step of the way, and that You love us, and that You don't forsake us, and that we can run to You as we would run to our parents, and we can know that our sins are forgiven in You. God, we thank You for these reminders. God, safeguard us, shore us up, help us to be proactive in investing in our relationship with You, because we are so prone to corruption from within and from without. So God, protect us and guard us. And God, help us to be competent in our faith in you. And we thank you for it all in Jesus' name.